From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Governor Jared Polis joins us after learning this weekend he has COVID-19, how he's feeling, his hopes for this week's special session, and whether a post-Thanksgiving viral surge is coming. The data that matters is what happens to the COVID infection rate in a week. So we do have some proxies for travel, but it's really hard to tell who had, you know, large Thanksgivings, who didn't. We know some people did. Maybe some of them wore masks. Maybe some of them did outside. Then teaching and learning from home have been some of the trickiest things to navigate in the pandemic. How Colorado's Teacher of the Year holds students' attention. Mr. Munoz is going to be the teacher that I will remember, like, when I'm 90 years old. And later, parents, cut yourself some slack. You don't have to be your kid's teacher. Tips for families navigating remote learning. Through the lens of CPR News photojournalist Hart Vandenberg, go to the front lines of the fight against COVID-19 in Colorado. Every hour of every day, nurses across the state and the country suit up for a battle becoming more difficult. Go into the ICU of Rose Medical Center in Denver and see their quiet, focused fight firsthand as Colorado braces for another wave of infections. The story in pictures at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Governor Paulus, how are you and the first gentleman feeling? Well, so far, so good, Ryan. Asymptomatic, you know, little trouble sleeping last night, but it's certainly likely that that was just from the worry of it. Um, not sure if it's a symptom or not, but no fever or anything yet. You know, and as I said back, I think it was March or April, Ryan, I said, you know, I think I'm likely to get it. Many are likely to get it. And, and sure enough, it took a while, but I did get it. And uh, I'm hoping for the best. So that is Governor Jared Polis speaking with me Sunday evening, a day after announcing that he and the first gentleman, Marlon Reese, have COVID-19. Polis revealed the diagnosis on Twitter and in a letter to constituents, which said in part, it doesn't matter who you are or what you do. No one is immune from this virus. Now is the time to be more cautious than ever. There is more of the virus circulating across the country, including in Colorado, than there was in the spring, end quote. Governor, what do you say to people who think you're the guy who for months has been imploring us to wear masks and wash our hands and stay home? And of course, those are all things that scientists say make a difference. But if you got it doing all of those things, then either some people might wonder what hope is there for me or to heck with it. I'm going out for pizza with my besties. All this thing is, Brian, is it's a potentially deadly game of odds. And the odds are that Marlon and I won't have to go to the hospital. I I just pulled the data, and for folks that are 39 to 45, there's about a 4% chance that each of us will have to go, you know, which is a better than likely chance we won't, but that's odds number one. Odds number two, being reasonably careful. I mean, you know, especially if you're in an at-risk group. I'm just so happy, of course, that we didn't have Thanksgiving with my parents. I haven't seen them in nine months. They're 76, and my mom has respiratory conditions. So this uh, is, is a very different trajectory for them. But even for people in their 30s and 40s, Ryan, with a you know, 4% chance of hospitalization, the danger is that everybody gets it at once. And, and we're, we're you know, getting this close to this now with 1 in 41. And if it gets much worse, we would run out of hospital space for that 2 or 4%, most of whom will make it through, some of whom won't. But if there's not space, then many of them won't make it through. Speaking of space, uh, hospitalizations in Colorado of confirmed or suspected COVID-19 patients are above 1,800. 
How close are you to ordering overflow facilities to prepare to open, be it at hospitals or those other overflow sites? Yeah, so I get we get real-time tracking daily on this. Now, it's important to know that the St. Mary's, the convention center, this space, this is non-ICU space. But what it would allow is hospitals to convert additional a non-ICU space into ICU space. Now, the hospital surge comes first. Many of them have already added beds, of course, since March. That's what they did with the time. Uh, at this exact juncture in time, we're not making the call to activate those sites. But if the trend doesn't change, that absolutely could need to occur in the next few weeks, as it has happened in other states where the infection rate has gone even higher. Do you have a specific trigger, a specific threshold? Well, yeah, I mean, it's basically making sure that we don't run out of space. So we talk to the main hospitals every day. They actually, under a relatively new executive order, give us bed numbers, ICU, non-ICU. It would likely first be one of the two smaller sites before the larger site. And uh, we try to be a week or two ahead of it, meaning we monitor the trajectory. And if we activate, it means that the models show that we will likely need them within two weeks. We are not yet there where we likely need them within two weeks. This disease is very modelable, meaning, Ryan, from cases today to hospitalizations is usually five or six days to ICU usually is a few more days. Not all the time. I lost a friend who got COVID, was hospitalized two days later, intubated the next day and died two days later. It can happen in five or six days, too, but that's not the typical trajectory. This diagnosis comes as lawmakers begin meeting in a special session focused on pandemic relief. This is a session that you called. What is non-negotiable for you in this special session? Well, first of all, uh, me having COVID will not have any effect in the special session, nor will if there are currently any legislators under quarantine or with COVID. I I know there there have been. I don't know if there are any at this exact point in time. But none of that will affect it. They've made plans for folks to be able to participate remotely. Uh, I can sign a bill that's delivered, you know, to me and, and without contact, I can go out, grab it, sign it, put it back, spray it with Lysol and then put it back out. <laughs> but um, what we're looking for, uh, Ryan, is aid for small businesses that are affected by capacity restrictions like restaurants, tax relief and direct aid, help for renters and landlords and child care assistance. There's a few other things, uh, remote access for kids, uh, food bank, but those are the big ones. How do you think you got this? Yeah, well, you know, look, I mean, nobody ever will know for sure. I was um, under a quarantine advisory, uh, had a likely exposure and potentially other exposures. But like a lot of folks, I also went to the grocery store, the pharmacy. Thankfully, my testing caught it early enough, which, you know, leads me to believe that at least in my chain of transmission, I didn't give it to anybody else. So mm. at least um, it was thankfully over the Thanksgiving holiday and we'd already made plans not to have Thanksgiving with anybody else. Uh, you know, Denver's mayor made a different decision Uh, He traveled by air, and this caused a lot of anger among Denver residents who say that he was not following his own advice. There are some calling for Mayor Michael Hancock's resignation. Are you among them? Well, well, look, um, everybody makes their own calculations. And and, and what I've said about Mayor Hancock and Congresswoman-elect Boebert, who had a large Thanksgiving, is I really hope that they don't contract the virus. Um, uh, If they do, I I certainly hope that they're asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, like Mayor Kaufman has been. I talked to Governor Sisolak of Nevada earlier today, who had COVID uh, a week or two ago as well, and was, was mildly to moderately symptomatic. So, you know, it's what I hope, but I will hope it for everybody, whether you're the mayor or whether you're somebody who had a Thanksgiving with other people or whether you're staying at home, but you might get it, you know, in the limited interactions you have. Mayor Kaufman, Mike Kaufman of Aurora. But just briefly, is this reason to resign for Mayor Hancock? 
Well, I mean, I don't why would I don't know why he would resign. I mean, I hope he doesn't get COVID. <laughs> um, I mean, the ultimate reason that folks are being careful is they don't want to get COVID. So I, I, I've expressed it by saying the ultimate enforcer is the Grim Reaper. There is better treatment now than there was in March, meaning there is a higher survival rate. It's uh, never good to get it, but it's more people that go into the hospital make it out now. And hopefully, uh, you know, everybody, whether they traveled or not, I hope that, you know, the minimum number possible will come down with it. And hopefully they were those who did travel, you know, wore masks. And I think the airlines are requiring them and and uh, were as careful as they could be. Do you have any preliminary indications, either through air travel or, you know, uh, traffic patterns, that people, for lack of a better term, behaved well over Thanksgiving? And is that, a, a you know, a harbinger? Well, look, uh, unfortunately, the data that matters is what happens to the COVID infection rate in a week. So we do have some proxies for travel, but it's really hard to tell who had, you know, large Thanksgivings, who didn't. We know some people did. Maybe some of them wore masks. Maybe some of them did outside. We know a lot of folks, like my parents and, and especially folks that are more vulnerable, uh, just had it themselves. And uh, I'm grateful for that. When we talk about what we're grateful for this Thanksgiving, I'm grateful that so many Coloradans made the right choice to not expose their older relatives to what could potentially be a deadly infection. We'll have our eyes on a week from now. Governor, thanks to you and a continued good health. Thank you, Ryan. Democratic Governor Jared Polis on the phone with me Sunday evening. He made it known over the holiday weekend that he and the first gentleman have COVID-19. But as of that recording, we're feeling fine. The coronavirus has thrown the school year into chaos. Students were out of class, then in, then out. The governor is so concerned about kids backsliding that he's named a task force to plan for a safe and hopefully fast return. A little later in the show, how the effects of this instability will reverberate academically and emotionally for years. First, we go inside a high school class at the Denver Center for International Studies, a Google Meet class held just before Thanksgiving. The teacher is Gerardo Munoz, who was recently named Colorado's Teacher of the Year. It's AP World History, first a writing exercise about a series of events dating back to the 1400s, then a true or false quiz, although Mr. Munoz calls it something else. This is Thanksgiving fact or crap. The first time Thanksgiving was celebrated was in 1621. Is that a fact or is that crap? It's crap. Uh, The first Thanksgiving was probably actually celebrated for centuries before the settlers came. All right. Arlo, Vera, Melo, Mizar, and Ruby in the top five. Next one. Well, Gerardo Munoz, Colorado Teacher of the Year, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. At one point in the virtual class, A student chatted you with a suggestion, and you told her you were up for it, that you'll do anything to make this experience bearable, because using your words, (laughs) times are pretty miserable. Talk talk to me about about that kind of brutal honesty about this environment, you know? Yeah, well, Ryan, for having on, it is tough. Um, This remote setting for high school students is extremely challenging. They're isolated. Um, you know, I, I joke with my students, it's like you got all the worst parts of school with none of the good parts. You're doing a whole bunch of work, you're by yourself and you don't even get to see your friends. And so I think it's, I think it's critical to be honest about this moment and how hard it is because we are experiencing what I think is truly a 
collective global trauma. Mm. And the more we can be open about how we're feeling in this moment, about everything that we're trying to do, um, I think the more of a chance we have to get ourselves through it. I have to say, we're having a bit of a meta moment because you've been cutting out here and there. And I, I wonder if that happens a lot in class, in virtual class, where you drop out or the system is slow or a student <laughs> is trying to speak with you and the connection is, you know, less than stellar. Yeah. Oh, no. It is, I'm sorry. I'm cutting out. Yeah. I, but this is a thing that we have to deal with a lot. Um, you know, fortunately, I live in a part of town where my Internet connection does tend to be pretty solid. Uh -huh. um, but at the same time, there have been times there was there was a time that I could not get my mic to work at all. And so I had to sort of trust my students to uh, do the work and follow the instructions. Uh, one time I went to pick up lunch and they messed up the order, which delayed me 10 minutes. And so I literally had to start my class from the Tokyo Joe's parking lot. <laughs> so there are all of these. And it was great. Like, so, so I'm, I'm chatting with the monitoring mind. My phone, of course, is at 5%. And, you know, and I'm saying, hey, y'all, there's a very good chance that I'm going to vanish from this call. Just keep doing the work. Do the best that you can. I'll update you. And so the students thought it was great. They were like, this is a Where's Waldo. Like, where is he now? Is he in his garage? Is he coming up the stairs? Like, are we going to see him in a second? And so they had a great attitude about it. And I think those are the kinds of things, you know, if you just sort of realize how little that you have over teaching, you know, good moments for levity and I, and I think that um, I think the students and I think teachers I think we all need a little bit of levity right now because mm. this is really hard you said something uh, just a moment ago that I want to probe that when the connection is faulty and you you sort of lose control over the virtual classroom you've got to trust the students to do the work can you trust the students That's right absolutely mm -hmm. um, you know, the, to me, the key to student success, um, whether we're talking about teaching in a pandemic or whether we're just teaching in quote unquote normal circumstances, is trusting that every student that shows up to your class wants to learn that day. And I believe that. I've been teaching for over 21 years and I've never had a student walk into my classroom who did not want to learn. They don't always have the tools. They don't always know what that looks like but they do want to learn otherwise they wouldn't show. And so I think fostering those positive relationships. And one thing that I really try to do is impart really clearly to my students that I care about them as people more than anything else. And so when that positive working teacher student relationship exists, then I think I can trust them to do the best that they can. Um, and that's the other part is that all of our students don't have the same circumstances yeah. in this remote learning COVID pandemic situation. And so I have to maintain good communication with the students, provide a forum where they can talk to me and share what's going on with them regarding school, uh, health, all that kind of stuff. And that type of trust just gets them invested to do the best that they can for themselves and for my class. But the assumption is that the student shows up, as you say. If a student shows up, I can trust that they want to learn. Have you had students who have simply dropped out this year? You know, um, this year it hasn't been as much. I think in Denver Public Schools, um, we have 
done more to get tools out there and to really double down on, you know, what's being discussed as social emotional learning. Um, my particular school leadership team is exceptional in this area. Um, we have been told in no uncertain terms that our academics might slip a little bit, but the main thing is that we first have to make sure that our students are okay in the spring. Um, spring was tough. Uh, you know, this came out of nowhere for us. And, um, you know, I, I was reflecting back on how I did tell my students, it'll be three weeks, we'll be back, it's going to be okay, y'all, you know, I'll see you then. And then oh. it never happened. That's the time where we really saw students just disappearing, you know, it was absolutely heartbreaking. Um, so they came and back? So they did. Oh. Yeah. Um, some of them changed schools, which, which is sort of sad, um, you know, but there were other things that they had to sort of take into consideration in this environment. But a lot of students we see in this thing, um, we did hear from more. There's, there's one young man who I think, you know, and he went through a lot with his family, um, you know, relating to COVID, not not just the virus itself, but also um, employment situations, rent situations. You know, I, I heard the first part with Governor Polis. Um, and, but this year he's come back with a lot more just, okay, now I know what to do. And now I know people support me. Huh. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Colorado's 2021 Teacher of the Year, Gerardo Munoz, joins us. He teaches social studies and leadership at the Denver Center for International Studies. He's a Denver native, graduated from Manuel High School. He's been a teacher for 21 years. And you talked about the fact that your students each bring something different to the table in terms of their home lives. Is home fundamentally a distracting environment? I think um, I think it depends on the student, definitely. Uh, I think so. What I'm seeing in my experience is that the bigger the family, the harder the environment is um, for students to do their work. And so our school and a lot of other schools in Denver opened remote learning centers where students could come, be socially distanced, masked. Um, they had to pass health screenings, all that kind of stuff, because the home environment was just it was, it was just kind of chaotic, you know, and not chaotic in a dangerous way. Like I have one student who has five siblings and they're mm. all doing remote. So it, it, it can be kind of overwhelming in that sense. Um, I've had a lot of fun with the home environment in some ways. I, I let my students see, you know, my my working space. I've introduced them to my dog and my cat. Um, and, you know, and, and there was this really wonderful moment in the first quarter of the school year when it was in my ethnic studies class and we were discussing our um, our historical heritage. And one of my students says, wait a minute, I think... My grandmother says that we have Native American heritage. So she gets up, runs out of the room, goes and talks to her grandmother, and then comes back with a little sticky note that says, okay, okay, here's here's what my grandma says. And that was really wonderful because when you when you have a situation where your students are willing to invite you into their home environment virtually, hmm. where that trust is there, it was just a really powerful thing. Um, so wait, gra grandma was in the than, house. Grandma yeah. grandma was there to, to be Grandma asked. was in the house. Grandma. Yeah. Yeah, grandma, grandma lives there. And, um, and so it was just a super powerful kind of thing. And, you know, that's not something that's happening in person. Um, what I will say, though, is that what we have seen is a significant uptick 
in incidents of depression in middle and high school students. So th- these are the grade levels that I teach. And I think that's the part that's really hard. They School may have its ups and downs, but they always have their peer groups that they can cling to, that they can laugh with, that they can complain with. There's always that built-in support. And that support is much harder for students to come by. Um, and I think, and I think our middle schoolers, I have a seventh grade class. I think our middle school schoolers are struggling the most with the isolation. And I think that is what can be really tough. So not so much the distraction of being at home, but just being by yourself in your room all the time. It's just tough. I want to talk about something else that's been going on for you. You and your family recently had COVID tests. Just briefly, what, what were the results? Yeah, so um, my spouse, um, who's an ECE teacher, uh, tested positive after having been exposed to a co- by a colleague. Um, we went and got tested a few days later. My spouse and my child both tested positive. I tested negative, oh. um, but I learned a lot about the the testing because I've been extremely sick. Um, and so what they sort of explained to us was that these tests are often just a snapshot and. So in that snapshot, they weren't able to detect it. But if I had been sick and I was displaying the symptoms and two out of the three members of my household tested positive, it's highly likely uh, that we were positive. So, yeah. So, I mean, it went from uh, one exposure to the whole house being sick. ECE. So your wife teaches, your partner teaches early childhood education. And and I gather... Uh, that means teaching in the classroom. The younger grades have often been in the classroom. Do you think that Correct. that's how it reached your home? E- yes, I, I believe it was a it, it was a colleague who had tested positive um, that, you know, they got. And it, it was just like these are the things that happen at a moment's notice. I came back from a run on Sunday, November 8th. And, um, and my spouse's assistant principal called, like literally the phone rang as I walked in and the news was your classroom has been quarantined. One of the adults who works in your community, um, tested positive. And so just like that drop of the hat, two weeks, not in person, but they've been in person most of the time. Mm. And, um, my understanding is that for that grade level, there's actually a lot of data that supports in-person learning. And so I think, I think they took all the precautions that they could, but you know, and I heard Governor Polis speaking about this. It doesn't take much; doesn't take much to have a to have a spread, to have an outbreak. And of course, we can't be certain uh, how it got into your home, but you have your suspicions. Um, In in just the last little bit here, what would make you comfortable going back into the classroom? So for myself, uh, you know, I just like most teachers who work in Denver Public Schools. I serve a primarily a population's primarily Hispanic and African American students and overwhelmingly Hispanic. I think our school is over 60% Hispanic and what we know about positive tests um, and positive test results and exposure is that the Hispanic community nationwide um, has had more positive tests than, you know, than than related to their um, their disproportionate tests, I'm sorry. Right, right. Um, positive results. Yeah, and so that disproportionality is something you're keenly aware of and would want to see addressed before you go back into class. Gerardo Munoz there. I'm sorry, we have to take a break. He is Colorado's 2021 Teacher of the Year. 
Through the lens of CPR News photojournalist Hart Vandenberg, go to the front lines of the fight against COVID-19 in Colorado. Every hour of every day, nurses across the state and the country suit up for a battle becoming more difficult. Go into the ICU of Rose Medical Center in Denver and see their quiet, focused fight firsthand as Colorado braces for another wave of infections. The story in pictures at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. So we just got a teacher's view of pandemic remote learning. Now some additional perspective on how parents, students, and yes, teachers can cope with this roller coaster. Rosalind Wiseman is an educational consultant, parenting expert, and co-author of the new book, The Distance Learning Playbook for Parents. She may be best known for her 2002 book, Queen Bees and Wannabes, which became the movie Mean Girls. Wiseman joins us from Boulder. Welcome back to the program. Hi. Good morning, Ryan. What should parents expect of themselves right now? (laughs) What a great way to start, Ryan. Um, uh, sanity at the, in the most best way we possibly can and patience for ourselves and for our children, um, with a, with a dash, a combination of self-compassion, I think is, um, really important. And for me as a parent and as an educator, really focusing on important principles that will guide our actions and our decisions as we go through this time. Give me an example of a principle that guides you. Well, you know, I run an organization called Cultures of Dignity. And so the principle that everybody um, has inherent worth is an incredibly important principle. I think right now, um, the principle that I'm focusing on a lot is being um, easy on people and hard and on ideas. So that means being easy on myself, my children um, and teachers, because we're all going through this. And at the same time, being hard on ideas as far as if we are in situations where our children are really disengaging and disconnecting from their school, then we really need to be hard on what is it and and analyze what is happening that Mm. is getting us to that place. Um, And then the other principle that is really important is listening is being prepared to be changed by what we hear. So um, those are a couple of the principles that I think are really important um, that I really try and keep in mind. Let's probe those. I so appreciate the idea of being easy on people and hard on ideas. It seems to shift the focus from the individual to the problem that needs to be solved. Uh, I'd like to know more by what you mean um, with changed by what we hear. I mean, we're sort of building this plane as we're flying it, aren't we? We are. We absolutely are. And um, and so being so, for example, I mean, I'm a I am a parent in having a child in public education in the state, and we've definitely had our frustrations and we've had frustrations with teachers. We've had frustrations with the platforms that my child is using. We've oh. had a lot of frustrations getting information to be able to fix problems. Um, I'm watching my child, as many parents are in this state. Um, you know, he brings down his classes on his computer while he's eating breakfast, and I can hear the classes just like so many parents can. And so I can I can hear and see in a different way. For example, your previous guest so clearly represents a teacher who's able to focus on the relationship um, of the children during class and being able to maintain those relationships, which is absolutely critical 
to having young people be stay uh, connected. And what also he said, totally true, that social emotional learning and skill building is so important. So I'll give you one specific example, which yeah. I'm hearing from both sides, from teachers and from, from parents and kids. When we get frustrated at each other, we send, sometimes we can send emails, like kids will send emails to teachers that can be come across as being rude because they don't know how to send an email that says, hi, Mrs. Hi, Ms. Wiseman, you know, I don't really understand the assignment or I couldn't find it or maybe it's late or you think it's late, how can I figure out how to solve this problem? Instead, it can come across as much more, um, shall we say, forthright. But I've also seen teachers do that to students. And in both ways, that can be really disconnecting. And so let's focus on, let's be easy on the people and know that we're on a hard time, but at the same time, get really clear on the skills that we need to build for both teachers and students about how to communicate with each other more effectively so our relationships are strengthened and young people are still engaged in their classes. You know, I think it's easy for parents, anybody really, to compare themselves to others. You know, is my kid keeping up with the Joneses, academically speaking, Mm. as it were? Is there a particular danger to that right now? Oh, my gosh. Well, there's always a danger to that. And before the pandemic, um, one of the things that was really hurtful to children was that parents were putting up these kinds of imaginary, perfect, humble, bragging images on Instagram and Facebook about their perfect children (laughs) and all the achievements, which only increased young people's unprecedented anxiety about like keeping up and keeping up and keeping up. And so that was never good. It was never good to compare um, your child to other people. Um, and at the same, and then even now, it's just the thing that is so important is to strengthen our relationships with our children, to get better at managing our emotions and, and managing our own um, our own reactions to the things that are going on around us. And to remember that emotions, although they are real, they are not necessarily fixed. They're not necessarily permanent. And if we can show that to our children and we can do that for ourselves and show it to our children, then we are literally showing them social, emotional skill building in action. And that is something that they can take with them after this experience is over. Because as you, as CPR has, has reported so extensively and is so accurate, the depression and anxiety that young people were experiencing before this pandemic was something we had never seen before. And we do know, right? And your last, you know, your your teacher before absolutely just saw this in middle school. We're seeing this as well. Is it depression and anxiety for young people are things that we just, in this level, we haven't seen before. And we need to be able to see that that is the most important thing, way beyond, way more important than comparing our children to other people's children. Is this a lost year? Like, is it a do-over year? Wow. You know, as a, you know, when we first started this, I was thinking, gosh, I really, uh, maybe not. And I have to tell you that um, as we keep going into this and as Governor Polis, you know, as I understandably, we are in a situation of trying to figure out how do we re-engage students? Um, the school districts that I'm working with, you know, people, we are working so hard. I've been, we are working so hard with Adams 12, for example, um, Cultures of Dignity is doing that to be able to do our best by, um, by students, you know, I, I really, I think the jury is out. Let me say that we've got to, most importantly is we have to listen to the students about what they need and what they think, because they are the subject matter experts of this experience. Oh yeah. But you, and, can, you know, you, I, I wouldn't trust a kid necessarily to tell me whether they should repeat a grade, you know, 
<laughs> I, I mean, no, my answer I don't would think be no. It's about repeating the grade. I don't think, but see, and I and I totally get you. But I also think that what we do need to do is have them at the table to have so that they can say where did they disconnect, where did they disengage. The, my point is, it's not about like should we, you know, fail kids. That's absolutely not what I'm talking about. Or should we repeat the grades all over again? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that young people are the experts of going through and receiving education this year. And so they know more about, and they let, let me say that they have to be partners with us and mm. try to figure out what they have lost because they are the experts of being on the receiving end of this. And so if we're going to figure out how to move forward, we have to have them at the table. We have to, to be able to un- understand how we can give them the skills, the tools and the education they need to go forward. What a powerful thing to just ask a young person, what about this didn't work? Where did it fall short? Where are the holes in your understanding? You're listening to Colorado Matters, I'm Ryan Warner, and we're joined by Rosalind Wiseman from Boulder, who has co-written the Distance Learning Playbook. Uh, the speed with which you got this written and published to respond to distance learning in the pandemic is remarkable, Rosalind. And I am curious if you find that young people are not just worried about themselves, but are worried as well about the adults in their lives. Um, we so often think of parents worrying about kiddos, but can't the opposite be mm-hmm. true? The inverse be true? Absolutely. Absolutely. They are worried about the adults in their lives. Um, and yes, we did write this book as quickly as we could because we knew that the resources, we, we just felt like it was important to get parents the information, like what was the information you needed? What was the most important information that you needed to be able to be Um, to shepherd your child through this process without necessarily having to become the teacher? And how could you work with teachers? And so, and if things are frustrating, um, which inevitably they're going to be, that how do you reach out to a teacher? How do you figure out what your child needs in this moment? And, you know, from reading to comprehension to social emotional skills and and physical and emotional well-being. And so what we do know is that young people are worried about their teachers and their parents and don't necessarily want to add on to the worry that their parents are experiencing. So if you're a parent listening to this, I would strongly recommend that you say to your child at some point, not with like super intense, you know, eyes and a super intense tone of voice, because that's scary. It's just say to them, hey, you know, I know that this is hard. I know maybe we're going through some hard times too. But also know that as your parent, I can, I, you can talk to me about these things. You know, you can talk to me about the frustrations you're having because yes, I totally appreciate. And I know that, you know, I'm going through maybe some hard times. This is a hard time for the family, but bottom line is I'm always here for you. There is such an important piece of advice in this book, which is don't trash the teacher to your kid. I mean, I think, <laughs> yeah. I think that sometimes commiseration can feel supportive, like, Oh, I know. Isn't, you know, Mr. Johnson the worst? Isn't Mrs. Smith terrible? (laughs) You know, we're in this together, but you're really, really um, uh, clear about not doing that with your kid. Yeah, thank you, Ryan, for saying that. And that's going to be really, really hard. There is a fine line between affirmation with your child and, you know, basically trashing a teacher. And so if your child comes to you, or you're overhearing something, which is something that I've heard, you know, as a parent, um, is really to be able to say the first line is to say, I'm really sorry this is happening to you. If your child has come to you with this problem, say, thank you very much for telling me. And together, we're going to think this through. And then the next thing that I would strongly suggest is that you get as much information 
about the problem as possible before you think about, well, how am I going to fight this fight? And so that you don't think the worst about the teacher, or at least check yourself about like, I'm in a tough spot and so are they. Mm. And so, you know, there's a little bit of grace that we want to give teachers. And there's a line between holding grace for people and holding them accountable when your child is uh, learning is suffering and when they're disengaging or when they feel incredibly frustrated. So there's a line, but so try and get as much information as possible. You want your child at as much as possible. I think in, you know, from about 11 on that they are corresponding with the teacher. You can review what they've said in the email so that it looks like they're learning the skills of how to communicate, especially when they're frustrated, which is a really important life skill for all of us to have. So we don't send crazy emails to people and make things worse, <laughs> um, right? Which we had a really important skill. And so if we can do that, you can do that. And then if the teacher comes, the response is not helpful or does not treat your child with dignity or does not explain things in a thorough way, then you can get more actively involved. And it's, I think those things are really important because, again, what you want to do is give your child graduated ownership of the problem because the more you can give them ownership while you're behind the scenes, the more you're showing your child that you have confidence, confidence in their abilities, that they are developing their confidence in a pretty difficult situation um, while acknowledging and recognizing that you're there for them all along the way. When we do this, this kind of relationship building, these again are the skills that are going to help your child now and are going to reduce your own anxiety and are strengthening the relationship between you and your child. And that's going to be helpful for the rest of their lives after this is gone. So it's a it's a really important process and a really important opportunity to really, unfortunately, that we're being given way too many opportunities to, to really say, <laughs> okay, here we go again. Let's, you know, let's do this again. Like um, as a parent, if I, if I can get schoology to work as a parent, I mean, my goodness gracious, I feel like it's a positive day. <laughs> I feel that if we can trust the technology and live radio to bring us a clear connection with a guest, it's a win. We feel that. Um, before we go, I'd like to ask about the distance learning environment in terms of just being like self-conscious as a kid, of the potential oh, yes. for bullying. You know, I remember how important looks were for me at that age and you know were my jeans rolled up in just the right way and did I have that crest on my hair I I'm dating myself with both of those but um <laughs> in about the last minute can you just reflect on the the difficulties of this environment for kids yeah so what we're seeing with middle school especially is that there's a lot of self-consciousness about um being on camera in front of their peers and so it is really important as a routine for your child anyway. I think it's important. Hygiene's always important, but let's try and create a routine when they get up so that they're feeling like they've taken care of themselves. So just getting up and like, you know, opening the screen is not helpful, but you know, no matter what. But really we need to acknowledge for young people that self-consciousness and to really, you know, to say, like, I get that. And so what we've got to do as teachers, and again, this is about working with students to be able to create norms in a virtual classroom so that we're acknowledging the reality that young people are feeling and we're creating norms because we know that if they can just turn off the screen then it's much less likely that they're going to stay engaged in the classroom mm. so if we can work with them to say this is the reality you know understandably we feel you know self-conscious you know because we just do to be on screens all the time some people really feel that so let's acknowledge that 
And then together, let's create norms for the classroom and for norms. the screens yeah. so that we're working together. Norms is what we're lacking. So let's create them where we can. Rosalind, it's been a real together. pleasure. Together. We're oh, in this together. Always. Thanks together. for being with us. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks, That's Ryan. Rosalind Wiseman, parenting expert, educational consultant from Boulder. She's co-author of the new Distance Learning Playbook for Parents. <music> Bathing the Denver City County building in colorful lights is a holiday tradition. There used to be another one, the bygone department store May DNF on 16th Street was known for its elaborate Christmas window displays. Whitney Moore of Keensburg wrote to us through Colorado Wonders over the weekend asking what happened to those elaborate window dressings. It's actually something we dug into when listener Jana Clark asked the same thing two years ago. I remember the windows having animated animals and doll-like mannequins that moved and had music They were just beautiful little scenes in each window as you walked around the outside of the building. So where did those scenes end up? We got as close to the answer as we could with Mark Barnhouse, who wrote the book Lost Department Stores of Denver. First off, May DNF went all out at wintertime. I mean, it even had like a ski slope outside. They did that one year in 1964 to kind of promote winter sports in Colorado. I have seen the image of this, and it's perilously close to (laughs) the gathered crowd, other businesses, and the street. Yeah, the funny thing about the ski slope was that it was actually uh, carpeted in white nylon carpet. So these Olympic skiers that they had down there were actually risking their careers by by demonstrating to the You've given crowds. A, a lot of uh, photos to us that we'll post at CPR.org of the windows that Jenna is talking about. What's stood out to you about them? My memory of the windows is fairly vague because I was just a little kid. Uh-huh. But uh, I do remember the, the movements. They would just sort of twist back and forth. And, and uh, they, there were all kinds of different scenes that evoked. And every year they had a different theme. Yeah. Uh, so in one of the photos that you provided us, it's sort of a travel theme. And there's a there's an old jetliner f- yeah. flying above a family, I think, that's either just been on a plane or about to get on one. That's right. And uh, the idea for that particular year was to illustrate the wonderful world of winter. The wonderful world of winter. Okay. Why do you think department stores put all this time and money into windows? Well, it was always about driving traffic, and especially in the 1960s, uh, we were starting to get the suburbanization of shopping, and the downtown stores were starting to lose trade. So they wanted to bring people down, and windows were one great way to do that. Because they felt that competition from the suburbs. Downtown had been suffering. Yeah, it's from their own stores, actually. They were kind of cannibalizing themselves, but they they, uh, wanted to keep those downtown flagships going. Because they had opened those other stores in the suburbs. Right. I'm just fascinated by the fact that this is your, what, third book on department stores? That's right. Yeah. (laughs) What fascinates you so much about them? Well, I tell the story when I was a little kid. I was seven years old, and my mother said one morning, uh, get your clothes on. It was a Saturday morning. Get your clothes on. We're going to go downtown. And we we went downtown, and we entered a darkened department store and rode the elevator up to the fifth floor, and it was a breakfast with Santa Claus. 
And there were, you know, hundreds of kids and their parents. And uh, from that moment on, I was fascinated with the whole idea of department stores. Which department store was it? It was the Denver Dry Goods. The Denver Dry Goods. Tell us just briefly about it. Uh, the Denver was kind of the biggest store that uh, d- downtown Denver had. And uh, they had the tea room. And everyone, I've talked to lots of groups, and everybody has memories of going to the tea room. Uh, you'd get dressed up to go downtown, and you would put on. Uh, women would put on white gloves and their hats and their you know nylons, and uh, men would wear suits. And it was originally designed to keep shoppers shopping. You know, grab a nosh in between going to different floors, but it became its own institution, its own destination. Yeah. Okay, we've got to get to Jana's question. Let's not keep her in suspense any longer. What became of the displays that so captivated her as a young woman at May DNF on 16th Street? Well, I'm afraid they were sold. I spoke to the man who designed those displays, a man named Bob Rhodes, and uh, every year he had a certain budget. So in order to augment his budget, he would sell the figures to another department store in Alabama. He would sell them and then presumably use the profits to buy something to buy new ones, yes. that would wow. Okay, so is it that they might have lived for a time in displays in Alabama? Definitely. But we can't say what happened to them after that. We cannot say. <laughs> Long gone. Okay, Jenna, you'd have to travel to Alabama, which wasn't in our budget for this particular Colorado <laughs> Wonders question. Uh, May DNF stands for Daniels and Fisher. The name is really an example early on of the kind of consolidation we've seen in retail what I guess May Company would have bought Daniels and Fisher. Correct. You call Daniels and Fisher Denver's pioneer department store. Why? Because it was founded uh, when Denver was only six years old. It was founded in 1864. Wow. So, and what needs would it have been serving at that point? In the early days, this is before Denver even had a train connection, but uh, they would. a lot of people were coming to Denver to go up to the diggings up in the, in the hills to, to look for gold. So they sold mining equipment and they sold... Uh, clothing, rough clothing that miners would use, but they also sold finer things for the women that were starting to move into Denver. And certainly for any families that were striking it rich. That's right. In those, in then their hills. Yes. And of course, the remnants of the old Daniels and Fisher department store is the tower, the clock tower on what is now the 16th Street Mall. Yes. Uh, the the de- department store itself was, was demolished in 1971 for urban renewal. Uh, but they preserved the tower. And uh, in 1980 uh, to 82, Dave French, Denver businessman, renovated it, and we have it today. Gosh, I see the images of the old entire department store, and I think it would have been lovely if they'd kept it. Can you it, describe it? For I think it was like a, the, the whole block. Well, it grew over time. It started out as a little two-story building in 1875, and oh. they, they kept adding on, and they added more floors. Uh, the tower was built in 1910, uh, 1911. One of the tallest structures in Denver for a long time. It was the tallest structure in Denver for 40 years until <laughs> 1958. Until <laughs> the, sky, the skyscrapers came. That's right. In the name of urban renewal, as you say. Uh, according to your book in early department stores, self-service was just unheard of. What do you mean by that? Well, in the early days, think back to the turn of the century, you had... Uh, you would walk into a department store and you had ca- uh, counters that had lots of people behind them to serve you. And then you would sit down on a stool that was bolted to the floor and they would bring things to you. And then once you'd made your selections, then they would send your cash to a central cashier office while they wrapped your and your package would be wrapped for you in, in paper and string. And 
And uh, either you could you could take it home with you or you could have it delivered. I mean, in that way, it was like having your own personal shopper. But that wasn't an exclusive thing. It was understood that that's how it worked. That's right. Uh, it was a different. It's hard to imagine that level of service in a store today. I wonder if it was reflected in the prices, though. It had to have been. Well, the department stores catered to the middle classes and the upper middle classes and the wealthy. So, you know, you wouldn't find too many people of of limited means shopping there. By contrast, you write about an early bargain center called the Golden Eagle? Yes. You say old-timers who remember shopping there are rarer and rarer with each passing year. What should we picture when we picture the Golden Eagle in Denver? Well, the Golden Eagle was at 16th and Lawrence, where Ryder Square is today, and it was a full-size department store, five five floors, uh, with all the usual departments in it. But the owner, Leopold Goldman, was known for uh, seeking out uh, other stores that were going out of business. So he oh. would bring the goods to Denver, mark them down, and, and Denverites could enjoy a bargain. The symbol of the eagle in the Golden Eagle meant a lot to the store's founder, I understand. Yeah, Goldman was an immigrant. He came uh, over uh, from Bavaria in the 1860s. And he quickly became very patriotic, and he hired a carpenter to construct the eagle out of wood, and he had it gilded and hung it above his store. Department stores of yore, as you've alluded to, had tea rooms, they had shoe repair, travel agencies. If there were one store, or maybe one department in a store that you wish you could have seen in your life, what do you think it would be? P- pick any era, Mark Barnos. Well, I really would have liked to have seen Daniels and Fisher uh, at the turn of the century. Uh, right after William Cook Daniels, the son of the founder, took over, he spent a lot of money remodeling the store with mahogany display cases with curved glass and lots of uh, oriental rugs everywhere. And it was just a, a fantastic experience. I would love to see that. There are too many defunct department stores to mention, but names like Newsteaders, Jocelyn's, Fashion Bar. Tell us before we go about, am I pronouncing this right, Gano Downs? That's correct. Gano Downs, the store with the shadow box windows. Yeah, these windows were on 16th Street. Uh, the store was at 16th and Stout across from Newsteaders. And these were called shadow box windows because the glass itself was curved from the top down so that when you were walking by, instead of getting the glare from the sun, you could see the goods within. And they were so famous, they adopted it as their slogan. Thanks for walking down memory lane with us. Thank you, Ryan. Mark Barnhouse is author of Lost Department Stories of Denver. He helped us answer a question through Colorado Wonders about holiday displays downtown. We spoke in 2018. What are your questions about the state? Head to CPR.org and we'll try to find the answer. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.